Hello, POSNA members and guests, and welcome to our Best of POSNA Discussion Podcast, General Trauma Session, part of the 2020 POSNA Virtual Annual Meeting. This is your host, Julia Sanders from Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm here today with our session moderators, Jeff Sawyer from the Campbell Clinic in Tennessee, and Holly Leshikar from UC Davis. Three papers have been selected from the session to be highlighted, and we have the opportunity today to go into a little more detail with those authors. Their full narrated presentations are available online, but I'll start with a short recap and then we'll jump into the discussions. First, we have the pleasure of welcoming Keith Baldwin from CHOP with his presentation, Fracture Characteristics Predict Suboptimal Alignment in Preschool Femur Fractures Treated in a Spica Cast, which investigated the failure of closed reduction and spica casting, including risk factors for failure of treatment and need for revision. Of 132 patients from three to six years of age, 35.6 healed in unacceptable alignment defined as greater than 20 degrees of deformity and or greater than three centimeters of shortening. Risk factors for suboptimal alignment were high energy patterns, i.e. transverse and comminuted fractures, proximal fracture location and initial coronal angulation greater than eight degrees. All three of these risk factors resulted in a 99% chance of unacceptable healed alignment. However, no corrective surgery was performed at final follow-up. Based on these findings, surgeons may be able to predict patients who may fail spica casting and might benefit from closer follow-up or early operative intervention. Lots of really interesting points here, so I'll let our moderator dive into this presentation. Uh, thanks to Jeff Sawyer from Campbell Clinic in Memphis, Tennessee, and to all three authors. These are great papers. Uh, Keith, uh, very interesting study. It's, it's always interesting. What brought you to this paper? Basically, we were we were doing a different paper uh, that's also being presented at POSNA um, regarding this classification and trying to figure out what to do uh, with pediatric femur fractures. And, you know, as we were sort of looking at some of the x-rays, we sort of noticed like, yeah, a lot of these littler kids, they heal in sort of what we would consider to be sort of not great alignment or unacceptable alignment. Um, and so that was kind of what prompted us to do this study, just to sort of see, you know, if that was the case. Because we don't see a whole lot of kids uh, end up needing to get corrective or secondary surgeries based on being treated in a spica cast. Um, and we had known that there was some interest in some other authors um, in treating some of these with more, I guess you would say, more aggressive surgical stances. Um, and we just weren't seeing bad results. So we just wanted to see if that was an actual thing, if we could predict which factors uh, might lead to unacceptable alignment. Hi, Keith. Holly Leshiker here. Um, agree with Jeff. This is a great paper, and I think something that a lot of us struggle with is whether or not to treat, you know, this transitional group in cast versus maybe doing something like flexible nails or an uh, intramuscular plate. I think all of us um, struggle with, you know, looking at these kids and saying this is suboptimal alignment, but then not necessarily really recognizing those of which that will require more surgery in the future. How do you kind of reconcile your results where you're seeing such a high number of suboptimal radiographic outcomes with the fact that, you know, most of us don't really see in our practice needing to take these kids back later? Yeah. And so that was, that was kind of my big takeaway from this paper. We see these sort of suboptimal alignments, but we don't think that they need like a further treatment, a further surgery. And I, I started seeing them back uh, like at a year just to kind of check up on them after having done this paper because we found that, you know, a third of them ended up in suboptimal alignment, um, which is a pretty high number place like CHOP. You know, I would think that we would you know, get a better alignment, but it's just it's just that we didn't. And so, um, you know, I started seeing them back at a year and we just don't find that they need you know, further surgery. And, and I think my guess is just that 
our, our assumptions of what acceptable alignment are may not be uh, right or may not be robust enough. Um, you know, obviously, you know, acceptable alignment in a two-year-old is probably a lot different from acceptable alignment in a six-year-old. And so I, I just think that our idea of what acceptable is might need to be changed. I think, you know, in order to say that for certain, um, I think we would need a longer follow of at least a year, maybe two years, just to sort of see what their, their end result was to see if they ended up being too short. Um, you know, even the AAOS guidelines were, were, were so, somewhat soft in terms of what to do if they are short, right? Because, you know, they said, you know, you can revise the fixation or go to a different strategy if fracture is more than two or three centimeters short. But the, uh, the recommendations weren't strong. And I think that was because some of the evidence is lacking, um, recognizing the fact that some of these will end up in unacceptable alignment by the book might not mean that they need extra surgery. One of the things I really liked was that you stratified it by these uh, three factors, you know, the pattern, the angulation, and the location is predictive for failure. Is one more powerful than the other? Like if you saw a kid say it was a proximal third, a bigger risk factor than say angulation greater than eight degrees, or could you figure that out from your paper? It's a little bit hard to know that. I um, I think proximal fractures were one of the things that were a really kind of bad actor uh, with these. The, the one thing is, too, that a lot of our fractures that were proximal were also transverse. So a lot of them will have more than one factor uh, to it. Um, I think the, the way we figure out, like, in angulation, because you say, well, how did you get, like, eight degrees? Like, what does that actually mean? So we oftentimes will use a process called area under the curve analysis, where we Try to figure out where where exactly the inflection point is where something becomes too much, um, and eight degrees happen to be a good measure of that. So if you took a fracture that was you know more displaced initially, you know that would become stronger. So dichotomizing it is somewhat arbitrary, but it does make it a lot easier to remember. You know, eight degrees you know being a risk factor. So I, I think in ter in terms of answering your question, I think a proximal fracture would be probably the thing that perked my interest the most. And then after that would probably be the fracture pattern, like either transverse or a comminuted pattern would be one that would tend have more tendency to shorten um, than one that would say a long oblique, which we typically think of as, as being very amenable to casting. Keith, just to tag on to that question, I guess the thing that most of us would be looking for is to how does this change your practice in terms of the kid that comes in who's five years old? What child are you still treating in a spike cast and what child are you potentially doing flexible nails or feeling like is the optimal candidate for fixation? Yeah, I think one of the risks of study like this is, is it, it tends to make you kind of think like that. Like how, do I, how do I make it different? I think, you know, in general, I think a spike cast is a pretty good treatment for a kid that's like, you know, under five years old. The exception would be, you know, obviously the ones that were at high risk, because obviously if you say, okay, well, this kid's five, right? He's a little bit heavier. He's going to be harder to manage. And he's got one of these at-risk fractures. Like that's probably one that I'm likely to consider a fixation on. But I think in general, still, if you saw like a three-year-old where they had this type of a, a pattern where it was proximal, where it was transverse and where, you know, where it was angulated to start out with. I think in my hands, I still get to spike a cast because I just think that my, my idea is, in this particular study is that our idea of acceptable may not be, you know, what it needs to be. Um, and I think, you know, as may have been mentioned before, a six-year-old or a five-year-old is a lot different from a two-year-old or a three-year-old than what you can accept. And obviously, I, I don't think I've ever done flexible nails under four years old. So I, I think most of those are still going to get a cast in my hands. 
even if I think that they're going to shorten or become malaligned, because I think those have not shown us that they have ended up needing another surgery later on down the line. In a lot of ways, you know, if you said, well, that fracture ends up in Barris, I think, we, you know, that we have some pretty easy treatments that can make that, you know, not be the case later on in a relatively minimally invasive fashion. So I think, like I said, I think really the next study that we need to do is sort of a, a longer term follow up with the fractures that are high risk to start out with and see, you know, just because like if you're doing a study of long term follow up, the, the trouble is that most most of the kids are going to do fine in long term. But you really want to have a group of kids that may not do fine. And that's like, I think what this study will add is it will say, okay, well, if you really want to follow the kids uh, that may not do well, it's these kids, these kids with the proximal fractures with the more transverse or higher energy patterns that are more displaced to start out with. These are the ones that you really want to have in your cohort so that you can sort of see what the long-term effects of, of a spica cast in a high-risk patient are versus ones that are you know, long oblique fractures that are likely going to do well in a cast regardless. I was just going to leave it open to you, Keith, on the last one, if that's okay. Just kind of, you know, where do we go from here and those kind of... Yeah, that's perfect. I, like I said, I think my take-home message is that, you know, children in, uh, children in this age group and spica cast do relatively well. There are some risk factors that we need to be aware of. Uh, you know, your more proximal fractures like subtropes uh, and that sort of thing um, with tr that are transverse and common or comminuted. Um, that start out more angulated. I think you just have to be more aware of them. When one of those comes in, uh, you may just have to say to the family, like this, there, there's going to be more of a likelihood that this is going to end up looking malaligned, but we just don't know what the long-term effects of that are. If the child is older, like, you know, in the five to six year age group, that's one that you definitely want to consider, you know, fixing. Whereas, um, you know, in the younger age group, you're probably still going to treat them in a spiky cast. I think in the future, we just need to have a, like a longer-term follow-up specifically a pro maybe multi-center of the ones that are more likely to uh, you know, fall apart over time, which like the proximal fracture. Thanks for the opportunity. Next, we have Scott Rosenfeld from Texas Children's with his presentation, Age-Based Screening for Non-Accidental Trauma in Children Less Than Three Years Old with Femur Fracture, which sought to describe the effectiveness of age-based screening protocols in identifying NAT and also to identify concomitant risk factors. Out of 417 patients, they found 75.5% had a complete workup per their institution's age-based protocol. 24.4% has a positive workup, resulting in removal from the child's guardian, which is significantly higher than previously reported rates. Patients under six months of age, females, African-Americans, and those with unknown mechanisms and delayed presentation over five days were more likely to have a positive workup. Based on these findings, specific age-based screening protocols with attention to compounding risk factors are needed to prevent under-identification of non-accidental trauma. This is such an important topic, and so I'll turn it over to our moderators for questions. Hi, Scott. This is Holly Lestricker, and um, I just wanted to thank you. I think we all do for diving into this topic, and we all, all of us who are pediatric orthopedic surgeons, I know feel that this is incredibly important. I kind of have two questions to start this off. And first off, what prompted you all to do the study? And secondly, were you surprised by your results? Well, thanks for the question. And, and, um, and thank you guys for your interest in our paper. Um, yeah, so I mean, it is, it's a really important topic uh, for all of us, especially those of us who work at, at children's hospitals. So there's really two main reasons why I became interested in doing a paper like this. One was 
I don't know if you guys have ever felt this, but I feel like, you know, when caring for young children with femur fractures in the past, I've often felt that there would be disagreement among the different providers like the ER doctors or the orthopedic surgeons about which patients should be worked up for non-accidental trauma. And it, it was just always such a subjective process. You know, your version of what a quote unquote reasonable story for how the injury happened might be very different from my perception of that. So I always wanted there, always wanted a way for there to be more objective criteria in the process of evaluating for and ultimately working up non-accidental trauma. And then the other reason is, sadly, a few years ago here in Houston, there was a news story about a young boy who was four years old whose body was found in the Galveston Bay. And it turned out that he had been treated by us here when he was right around three years old for a femur fracture. We treated him with spica cast. And so that incident kind of set us off to evaluate our process here at Texas Children's and, and to, to, to see what our screening process was and kind of maybe even look at a QI project to see if what we were doing was, was efficient or not. So that's how we got, that's how we got into it. Was I surprised about the outcomes? I think we were a little bit surprised that it was that our numbers were higher than those that have previously been reported in the literature. I think our methods, you know, may have influenced that a little bit because we did look only at those patients that had complete workups because we wanted to look specifically at the effectiveness of a screening process, of an age-based screening process. We tried to be very specific about and intentional about looking at only those patients that had complete workups utilizing our institution's protocol. So I think we were we were pretty surprised that our numbers you know were higher. Around 25% of our patients who had complete workups were positive for non-accidental trauma. Scott, this is uh, Jeff Sawyer from Memphis. Uh, great paper. I, I really enjoyed reading it because I think we're all very good at the six-month-old that comes in with a femur fracture, and most of us would probably agree that's not accidental trauma, but it becomes more gray once the kids become one or two uh, years of age. So I really appreciate you shedding some light on that age group that we probably under-treat. Can you just tell us real quick how this has changed maybe your workup for a child, say in that older age group, that one- to three-year-old age group? Well, it, it hasn't quite changed things yet because we're literally just finished analyzing the, the data. Like I said before, the, the big problem was the subjectivity of the process. And so I think the, you know, the first part of it was identifying that our numbers are, are pretty high. And then the second part is, is that we were able to look at factors that compounded the risk. And so you know, we all know that young age and, and whether or not they walk are associated with abuse or non-accidental injury as the cause, but what happens when there are other factors? Um, and, you know, interestingly, we saw that, you know, basically patients under age 15 months, age, that age alone met our statistically significant threshold for being a high enough probability of abuse that, that they should be tested. But then if you added if you if you're over 15 months and you added one other risk factor like greater than five days or female gender or african-american race each additional factor increased the probability that injury was non-accidental and so you know what i hope comes out of it is that 
it allows people who are on the front lines and are maybe uncomfortable with pushing to consider that as a diagnosis can utilize these objective factors to look into abuse as a cause of these injuries. Really excellent, Scott. I think uh, what a lot of us struggle with too is kind of the algorithm once we decide to work up the kids for non-accidental trauma or abuse. We don't know exactly where to start, right? An HMP, social work gets involved. And you guys very clearly laid out that, you know, certain labs get done, a CT scan of the head. And I actually was really interested because we've been trying to set this up here at UC Davis ourselves is where does that algorithm for the workup come from? So I think that's a really good question. And I think having something like this standardized across multiple institutions would be really useful for everybody. You know, our institution put together this age-based workup protocol, maybe 2011 or something like that. And it was based on a handful of articles. I think the most predominant one in the development of the protocol was an article published in Journal of Pediatrics in 2007. It was titled Evaluation of suspected child abuse, written by the AAP Committee on Abuse and Neglect. And that's really the main one that described the fact that an age-based workup is appropriate and made specific recommendations on blood panels like CBC, um, coagulation studies, and liver enzymes like amylase and lipase, and then imaging studies like like skeletal survey and, and CT scans of the head. So that was put together by our pediatric uh, emergency medicine team. We also have a child abuse prevention or protection team. That's a group of pediatricians who are fellowship trained in, in child abuse issues. That was put together by that group, kind of a multidisciplinary group utilizing those references like from pediatrics. Scott, one of the things I'm really interested in in your paper was that an unknown mechanism was one of those compounding factors that you talked about. We all know the challenges of retrospective research. So was unknown mechanism unknown because we couldn't find it in the chart or was unknown because no one could give you a history? Yeah, Jeff, that's a, that's a really good question. And every patient did have a comment on the mechanism of injury in either their ER note or in their orthopedic H&P or their child abuse H&P. And so we took those mechanisms and if it was unknown, we listed it as that because it was said in the note that family didn't know how it happened or it was unwitnessed or something like that. And then the same thing with the time from injury to presentation. It wasn't that we couldn't find in the chart. It was that the, the people who brought them in weren't aware of when the injury occurred. And, you know, that really fits with previous publications in the literature that the, the vagueness of report from the guardian increases the chances that the injury was, in fact, non-accidental. To the younger POSMA members and residents, just how important taking a good history is, right? Because if really unknown mechanism is a driver for compounding risks, and it's really important that we take good histories. My, my last thing, I had the pleasure of reading your manuscript. What are, what are the future directions for this study? Where do, where do you see us going from here? Yeah, so, you know, we, we this is one of those studies where we, we, we identified our group and then we, we found factors that were, you know, predictive of non-actional trauma, and then we developed an algorithm, if you will, to predict it, but we developed that based on the population that was used to identify the risk factors, right? That's not the best science, but it's a start, and so 
what what I think would be interesting would be to see if the same risk factors that we identified were predictive of abuse at other institutions in other regions um, and kind of to try to validate these risk factors and this this compounding risk factor equation. And then if so, ultimately, you know, again, in the spirit of having objective criteria, it would be so helpful for doctors in the ER who are, who are taking care of these children to have some simple tool that they could use, you know, maybe even an app where they just plug in the answers to these five questions when they see a two-year-old with a femur fracture and they get and it spits out a probability of that injury being from abuse. Thank you so much, Scott. We really appreciate you doing this paper and being with us. Thank you. It was fun. Finally, we have Mauricio Silva from UCLA with his presentation, Operative versus Non-Operative Management of Acute Pediatric Montasia Injuries with Complete Ulna Fractures, which compared the outcomes in two comparable treatment groups with an average follow-up of 15.9 weeks. They found no cases of recurrent radiocapitellar subluxation or dislocation in either the operative group or the closed reduction and casting group, and the only complication in either group was a superficial wound infection in the operative cohort. All patients healed their fractures with full elbow range of motion. These results suggest that close reduction and casting with close clinical follow-up is appropriate for Montasia injuries with complete ulna fractures, and that current treatment algorithms may lead to unnecessary surgeries. This is clearly a controversial topic and is a great opportunity for discussion, so I'll hand it up back over to our moderators. Mauricio, great study uh, on a very relevant topic. Maybe you could share with us just what got you interested in this? Well, thank you, Jeff. Ever since Ramsky published his paper in 2015, we knew that we were outliers in the treatment of Montagia fractures. Our institution has a, a very active urgent care with all Montagia fractures are actually closed, reduced initially and placed in a cast. I couldn't remember a time where I actually had to fix one of those. And so when Florence's paper came out in 2017 and, and the results were so opposed to each other and, and they, they suggested that the majority of them could be treated without surgery, uh, we got interested in actually looking at our, our numbers to be able to provide additional data to it that will support the non-operative treatment. And so we partnered up with uh, some of my friends at a CHOP where they have a large portion of those actually following the classification given by Ramsky, and we had a chance to be able to compare them. Mauricio, what I was wondering, looking at, you know, your abstract was, what's your all protocol for treatment, non-operative treatment? How frequently do you follow up these kids? How frequently are you seeing them in the clinic to make sure that they don't lose reduction? Are you doing any sort of dynamic imaging on the kids, supination and pronation, or what's your exact protocol? So thank you. So th that is the critical thing about if you are going to decide to treat a, Mon a Montella fracture non-operatively, the key is to be able to follow them on a weekly basis for the first three or four weeks. If, if, you, if your institution is not set up for that, obviously that's not a good idea. Our institution is set up for that. Our patients are it's relatively easy for them to come. When we reduce them in our urgent care, urgent care has a fluoroscopy machine and we actually test them and see what is the position of best stability once we get reduction and the patients are cast in that position in terms of pronation and supination. So we know that that's the most stable uh, position. And then on a weekly basis, they get for the first three or four weeks, they get x-rays where we actually ensure that the radiocapitellar joint is still reduced. I think that's so important to make light of that because not all of us have those resources on hand and it, 
and it definitely makes the closed treatment easier, I think, to follow them closely when you do. That's very, very important. Not every institution is set up in a way like ours where it's easy to follow them. You really need to be able to ensure that those patients will be followed on a weekly basis. Mauricio, it's Jeff. It's kind of interesting. Traditionally, out of CHOP, came out that first paper in 2015 advocating surgical treatment. And then you guys came out saying that maybe that's in all the cases. Was there an institutional bias? All of the surgical cases came from CHOP. In uh, in our series, we had not we don't we didn't have any surgical ones. Now you have to tread lightly here because if you look at the difference between the two groups, all of those that are non-op, if you look at it, the majority of them are beta ones, and the majority of them are actually shaft fractures. And I think you have to be careful about that, and we're going to uh, analyze our data more detail on that. There is a large thing on the surgical. We're actually Bedus uh, two, threes, and four, which tend to be more unstable, and there are more proximal fractures. And so I, I think when we look at, at the whole thing uh, in, uh, more carefully, I think it's safe to say that beta ones in the shaft are actually pretty safe to manage without surgery and with careful follow-up. But I think you have to be a little more careful with other more unstable patterns, especially with more proximal fractures. And I think those one of the why CHOP has a higher rate of surgeries because they also tend to have a higher rate of more complicated fractures that uh, makes them uh, tend, uh, tend to have more surgeries. Mauricio, do you think that the mechanism of the injury plays into this at all as well in a treatment bias in terms of if it's a higher energy mechanism? I, I think that that has, it makes complete sense. I, I don't think we are, our analysis is to that fine detail at this point. Uh, we're still analyzing the data, but it is very likely that that's the case. And so higher energy injuries will have a higher potential for redisplacement. And so they probably will more often be, be fixed because of that. This is Jeff again. Uh, how do we uh, put this all together? Going forward, what's, what's your advice for younger surgeons? So Jeff, I think what it, what it really boils down is, is the fact that we are following religiously a classification that might be too broad. Uh, it's, it's, it's the same the same discussion that we have for forever about type 2 supracondylar humeral fractures, where we all say that all of them have to be fixed, when in fact, they are they are not all the same fractures, but then they, they all not can be treated exactly the same. And I think the same thing is is with this Montague classification. Not all complete fractures are actually the same. And so I think we need to look at the specifics and the details of each one of those fractures to come up with a classification that is more pertinent and that will allow us which fractures are going to be more unstable and will require surgery versus going ahead and fixing all of them. If you look at, at the uh, paper from San Diego, I mean, 72% of patients ended up not requiring surgery. And so my concern and what I would like to get with this is to really come up with something with a classification that really allows us to prevent doing unnecessary surgery on patients that otherwise will do, will do fine with, with the close reduction and cast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for participating in such a great discussion. Thank you to all the POSNA members and guests for tuning in. I encourage everyone to check out all of the virtual meeting content, including the narrated presentations on the POSNA website. Mm -hmm.